Uh, well, thank you very much, Greg, and uh, thank you for leading us. Thank you for singing this morning. Uh, I am Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at GPC. Um, good to see you guys. I don't know what I don't know what you're supposed to say to that, but I was anyway. Uh, good morning. Good to see you. And those online, welcome online. Good to see you guys virtually. Thank you for joining us here online. And I hope you had a good breakfast this morning. Yeah. All right. Very good. Um, so we are in part two of what we're calling a series called Doing Good, five-part series called Doing Good. And to get started, I want to take you to an escape room. How many of y'all ever been to an escape room before? Okay, very good. I have not been to an escape room, so I'm taking you somewhere I haven't been, but I think I know what they're like. So for those who haven't been to an escape room, including myself, my understanding is that in these rooms, you go in with most likely a group of friends. Um, they could become enemies in there, I suppose, depending upon the heat of the moment. You're trying to get out of the room before the timer goes, and you know, you're know you done. You have a certain amount of time, and you have to solve a number of clues to find hints to get out of the room and to escape from the situation that you're in. You're part of a larger story. Uh, you're playing a role in that, and you try to try to get out. So that's kind of the general thing. For those who've been in an escape room, is that like basically the story? Yeah, okay, fair enough, good enough. So at the end, you get a cool picture, right? You can post on an Instagram wherever you post things. Or if you don't post anything anywhere, then you get the picture anyway and, you know, do with it as you will. So imagine, though, in an escape room. Here's my understanding of escape rooms. If you can picture the room up on the top left, um, if you see the sneakers of the person leaving that room, sometimes there are some escape rooms, if they're bigger, when you work to get a clue, sometimes you get a key that might unlock a door and take you what you think is out, but turns out to be actually another room, which if you don't know that's happening, that can be kind of frustrating. And the reason I bring up escape rooms is because of that issue. Let's say you get to the second room. Can you imagine what it would feel like if you were still trying to get out, get out, and there are people in your party who were like, hey, that's good enough. <laughs> we got out of a room. Like, we solved the problem. We got out of that room. But you're like, no, we didn't actually get out, get out. We still have more to do, more to do. The reason I bring that up is I want to use that as a metaphor for considering some of the most challenging um, issues or topics of our day. Meaning this, that sometimes some relationships or issues are kind of like a simple escape room. Like, mm, if I get, like, it's a simple one-on-one -on -one kind of um, relationship. For example, when I pay my cable bill, my relationship with Comcast or Xfinity, complicated, but straightforward. I pay money, I get a service. Simple as that. My relationship with my wife, very different, more complex. There are multiple rooms. Same for her, for me. Understanding, okay, I unlock this, now Now I'm over here. Now I'm over here. Now, and how do I win the heart and woo the heart of someone like that? Same thing for how do we solve the problem, the, the war in Ukraine. Do we just get one key and unlock the door and that will solve the problem? Of course, we know that's not true at all. You get one key, and that might take you to another room. You still might be locked in, but you've gotten a little bit further. I want to bring this issue up because I want to talk about how does one unlock, if you will, our understanding of poverty in our community. How do we think about poverty? Because for some of us, as we think about poverty, it can be kind of like an escape room. Well, there's a simple key to it. And if I can express the key this way, for some of us, we may have been raised to think, well, here's the simple key. If people would make better choices they could get out of the room that they're in, and then they would be free. If they would stop paying for cable TV when they really need to save their money, if they would stop spending money on cigarettes, if they could get a budget put together, if they would graduate from high school, if they wouldn't sleep around, if they could hold down a job, 
In other words, if I put all that together, if people would make better personal choices, <laughs> they wouldn't be in poverty. That's the key. It's not that hard. Here's the single key. Make better personal choices, and you get out of this room. The problem is you find yourself in another room once you make different personal choices. You don't actually get out. And that's the case that I want to make today. In fact, here's what I want to try to talk about today, and I'm building this phrase up here today. If we don't understand poverty's causes are more than personal failings, and its solutions are more than be a better person, then we'll miss the full heart of God for our local communities. If we don't understand that poverty's causes are more than personal failings, and its solutions are more than be a better person, then we'll miss the full heart of God for our local communities. Now, there may be a better way to shorten that. Maybe you can tell me what that is at the end. But this is where I want to go this morning. I want to talk about doing good in the context of what God is teaching us, I believe, through the scriptures about his heart for justice in an entire community. Now, to get there this morning, what I want to do is I want to ask and try to answer a couple of questions. First of all, I want to ask the question, what causes poverty biblically? Secondly, how do we deal with the complexity of poverty? And thirdly, this, what can I do now? Now, the reason I think this is important for you, you may be thinking, why do I need to care about poverty? If you are someone who says you're a follower of Christ and you, you want to follow God's heart, I don't want you to get out of one room and into another and still be stuck. In other words, I think that there is a fullness to seeing God's heart for a community that sometimes we miss in our simple solutions that we can offer to things like poverty. And that, in fact, understanding God's heart for those who are most vulnerable in our communities can open us up to seeing who God is and how we can follow him with greater fullness in our own being. Now, I hope to work that through with you this morning. You can decide at the end how well I did. I want to give acknowledgement again today. I'm grateful to Tim Keller's work in Generous Justice. If you want a good read on this, um, his book is worth that time. All right, so let me ask this question. What causes poverty? What causes poverty? And I want to make the case, first of all, I want to identify three biblical cases of poverty. And guess where I'm going to start? Right here. Personal choices. Having just tried to make the case that we can emphasize this too much, I do want to say that this is an absolute part of it. In fact, if we go to the Proverbs over and over again, we can find that lack of self-discipline and laziness cause personal um, poverty. All right? That's a part of it. And so I'm not going to deny that. All right? That's a part of reality. So that's one thing. The second thing is this, crises do. Some of you have seen the Homes on Route 30, a tractor trailer drove through the porches of a couple of those a couple of weeks ago. Imagine if that just kept going right through those homes. I don't know the residents in those homes personally. Maybe you do. So I don't know if what I'm about to say is true, but it's possible that in a situation like that, that can be a life-altering reality for the people who live in that space. It could cause a moment of real displacement, and it could drive a family into poverty. Famine, flood, um, significant health crisis, we know this, and so we respond well. I mean, you people have a great heart. I mean, you care for people. You give to causes that are significant. So you kind of know this. Like, this, this all makes sense, all right? But the third thing that causes poverty is something we don't often think about or really don't even maybe know can or should be part of what our concern is if you call yourself a Christian. 
And this is what I want to spend the most time on this morning because I think this third cause of poverty is the one actually that is spoken about the most in the Bible. Not the least, but the most. And that is this, systemic factors. The Bible uses a word, oppression. I have to admit, I'm concerned to use that word today because it has political overtones. I'm not trying to get political. It is a biblical word, oppression. This is the factor for causing poverty that is spoken about the most in the scriptures. And as I think about my faith and how I express my faith, I have to ask, how am I understanding what my role can or should be in the systems or in the culture around me? So just for example, if we go to the Old Testament, and that's where I'm going to be today primarily, we look at the entire giving of the law in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and even in Deuteronomy, and we see there, as we read through that, those sections of Scripture, over and over and over again, there are what we call civil codes or laws about how the society should be structured, how it should be structured, how the system of law, of government, um, of financing, of lending, of um, economics should be structured so that we can provide an equitable, just community for the people of God. To be even more specific, in Leviticus 19, just to pick out three things, Leviticus 19, we read there about the importance of a judicial system that isn't weighted in favor of the wealthy, that speaks about bribery. So, for example, in our world today, a couple years ago, my uncle, who used to be a cop, um, after he retired, he became a school resource officer. So if you're evidently bored after retiring from the police force, you want to be annoyed, you go be a school resource officer in a public high school because that was quite the event for my Uncle Charlie. So as Uncle Charlie tells me the story, he's like, I was a school resource officer and we had some seniors who pulled a senior prank, except it kind of went sideways and there was significant vandalism in the school, like significant vandalism. He said, I've never seen anything like it. Um, the school called me in to investigate. We did an investigation, found a few senior guys who were responsible for the vandalism, and it, it was the kind of thing that needed to be. The, the weight of the law needed to be brought upon this situation. He said, when the dad of one of these seniors found out about it, he was a man of wealth and significance. He came to the principal of the school and basically said, how much? How much? In other words, we're going to expel your kid because we're bringing the weight of the law on it, but How much? What kind of donation do you need to the Education Foundation to make this go away? And ultimately, the board, the school board, decided not to press charges. Why? <laughs> because the weight of the judicial system, as much as we might want to say, isn't slanted toward the wealthy and the powerful. You have stories, and I have stories that say, actually, it is. <laughs> and it can be, not in its full entirety, for sure. I'm not downing the whole thing, but we know that even today, this is an issue. And so what happens is people who have wealth and means have access and privilege that those without means simply do not have. It even happens today, which is why in Leviticus, God says, I don't want this to happen for the community that is just. He writes about, he cares about laws of justice, no bribery. In Exodus 22, we read there about loans with excessive interest, not loaning people money with, ex with excessive interest. This is a God issue. Why would God, of all the things that he's writing about, care about someone like the loans that we offer to people? Have you ever been downtown? Like I, I was in downtown Lancaster, just Lancaster for a meeting the other day, and I was driving out and I saw a payday loan window, um, several people deep, people coming to get immediate cash 
and being charged exorbitant interest rates while they're waiting for their paycheck to come and they're just kind of getting in a hole over and over and over and over and over again. Bail bonds, all right, trying to get someone out of uh, prison and you're going to pay an exorbitant amount on those bail bonds. And you think, well, come on, like I'm a Christian. Like shouldn't Christians just care about Jesus and coming to faith and then being nice to friends? Like, yes, but God, but God, when he tries to create a community of justice, he cares about things like bail bonds, about payday loans, about looking around us and seeing maybe a broader expression of what our Christian faith could or maybe even should be in the Old Testament. Another thing is unjustly low wages in Jeremiah 22, even in James 5. God talks about paying people unjustly low wages and how wrong it is. That yes, you can get away with it, but how wrong it is. Again, these are things that are a little unusual for us to think about when we think about our own personal faith. We tend to think, well, I, just, I need to grow spiritually. <laughs> but these structural issues, like, they're beyond me. So I ask this question, like, like, how do we handle it? Like, think about these real quick. How do we handle this? When we have someone, when we think about poverty, well, how do we handle personal choices? We try to encourage people to, to come to faith, like come to Jesus, and make better, healthier choices. And I'm not against that. I'm not, absolutely not against that. I long to be a part of a church that holds out the hope of Christ and the gospel to all to come and see and feel the grace and redemption of Christ. Fully on board with that. Fully on board with that. And I hope that people make a personal choice to follow Christ, to repent of our sin, to acknowledge that we've, we're broken and fallen, and that we need the hope of a Savior. Fully on board with that. But that's not all that we do, all right? When we have crisis, what do we do? We give. We support. We go. We travel. Some of you have gone on short-term mission trips and helped with hurricane relief and all that. Now, what do we do? How do we handle it when there's systemic factors? What, what do we do then? Because that seems out of reach. Well, what we do often is like, well, that's, that's for the government to handle. So what I'll do is I'll vote. I'll vote my party. That's for the local, state, and federal government to handle. That, that's what it is. And so we can, in our expression of church day, we can farm out to a government control of systemic factors that is a leading cause of biblical poverty, that is an issue that God has at his very heart as he tries to establish a community of justice. And my concern is not that we farm it out to our government, because I understand why, and I'm not totally against that. My concern is simply this, that our views of how to handle these issues are driven more by our political interests than our biblical understanding. In other words, if I vote on the right and I'm a conservative, I'm going to prefer a smaller government. I'm going to prefer private volunteer donations to solve all of the problems that I might see in society. If I vote on the left or the more progressive or liberal side, I'm going to see an increased government support. I'm going to see a broader social structure. I'm okay with increased taxation because I want the government to provide that. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to answer how do we resolve as Christians the systemic factors by saying I'm going to vote my party line and allow the party lines to be what drives us. And I just want to say again that there are no Republicans and there are no Democrats in the Bible. There is not a two-party system in the Bible. What I do see, and here's what I'm convinced of, if you want to see the right in the Bible, you can find it. And if you want to see the left in the Bible, you can find it. What I want us to do is to find the heart of God. 
Because the heart of God is a heart that is interested in all of these. Yes, personal morality and personal choices and personal ethics. Also crises for sure, but also the systemic factors that drive us, that move us and create culture and society. Now, to get there, I want to just... I want to go to Deuteronomy to start, all right? I'm going to skip through a bunch of verses, so you can turn if you want to. I'm just going to throw it all up on the screen for the ease this morning. But I want to learn how to handle it, and how did God handle it? How did he handle it in the Old Testament, especially? All right? So here's, how we, here's what we read. In Deuteronomy 15, 11, God says it this way. He says, There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward the poor and needy in your land. And so to start off, we think, like, and this is my, and probably yours, this is my lived experience. Has anyone here lived in a place, in a country? Let me just keep it here in America. Has anyone had an experience in North America where you have lived, where there have not been poor people in the land? This is all of our shared experience. I'm like, well, this makes sense. And then what that can do for me is be like, well, I'm just going to accept it. That's the way it is. In fact, even God says, there'll always be poor among you. I mean, look at it. It's in the Bible. You know what's funny? Deuteronomy 15, 11, you know what comes right before it? Well, verse 10 does, but before that comes a, an earlier section in verses 4 and 5. And this is weird because this is, this is one of the strange things about the Bible. But here's what Deuteronomy 15, 4 to 5 reads. There should be, how many poor among you? There should be no poor among you. Wait, wait. There should be no, there should be, there should be, no poor among you. For in the land that your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. So what's the deal? Because you just said there will be, but now you're just saying actually there, there shouldn't be. Just kidding. There, there shouldn't be. And this is what I think God has this heart for. Because in and around Deuteronomy 15, 4 and 5, he gives us these laws that I'm going to share with you in a second here that help create a community that I'm going to call a community of justice for people of God, not for governments, but for people. Now, what I believe is what I want us to see is that these laws that God gives are not laws for a government to follow as much as laws given through the character of God. In other words, what I want you to see is not that our government should organize around these, but that we see a character of a loving Heavenly Father who in his divine providence wants to create laws like these that you will see to create a community of justice. These things, in other words, don't come from, we don't need to become a theocratic government like we saw in the Old Testament. We just need to follow the heart of God. So here we go. Let me, let me move into these. He created several laws. First of all, we think about how do we handle it based on Deuteronomy. We see in and around Deuteronomy 15 laws, what's called laws of release. Now, what that means is um, there was release from debt and release from slavery, which is weird. Like, check it out here, Deuteronomy 15, 1 to 2. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan that he has made to his fellow Israelite. Can you imagine how well that would go over right now? If you're a lender, every seven years, it's over. It's over. Now, what would you do? Like, this is just, this is God creating this. Now, this is a, I'm going to call it dear, this is a public policy, public policy of the nation of Israel, public policy 
that is aimed at reducing and eliminating one of the causes of long-term or generational poverty, and that is burdensome debt. And so God says, here's what I want you to do. Every seven years, cancel all your debts. Now, what would you do if you're a savvy businessman? You're like, well, if you're six, you come to me and you need a loan, wait a year. Because next year is the year that we all, like, forgive our debts. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait till the next year. You know, or you're going to loan based on, um, you know, you're going to loan based on the, the amount of time remaining in that period of time before it has to be released. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of still play it safe. Well, here's what, what God says about that in Deuteronomy 15. He's like, if there's a poor man among you, among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. So what he's saying is, I want you to look around you and see people who are in need, and I want you not to be closed-fisted but open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. Why? Now, this is important. He's not saying, I want you to give handouts to those who are poor. He's saying, I want you to give credit to to pull them up and out so that they can find their way up and out by the credit that you give to them. This isn't a handout. This is giving to people the opportunity to borrow, knowing, still all the well knowing, that by year seven, you're going to have to release that debt. He's like, I don't want you to be tight-fisted. I want you to freely lend, not give, but lend him whatever he needs. He should give it back to you, but do not be tight-fisted. But there is a law of release, all right? There is a law of release. And so here's the deal. There's these laws of release that basically are trying to help create a community where there's not this long-term burdensome debt. There's also, and some of you are familiar with this, laws of gleaning. The, the most famous story around this, if some of you know your Bible, you know the story of Ruth and Naomi. Ruth um, basically became a migrant, <laughs> Um, an alien in the, in, the, in the nation, but she came in and kind of a migrant worker. Boaz, who owned this property, he was told uh, this, this field, he was told don't harvest the corners of the field so that the poor basically can, can glean or take from the corners of your field. The laws of gleaning are, are common throughout the Old Testament. Why would God give the laws of gleaning? What he's saying to business owners or field owners, agricultural owners, people with means, people with properties, he's saying, I want you to intentionally limit your profit making. I want you to intentionally limit yourself with your profit making. You could squeeze every last ounce of profit out of your business and out of the land that you own, but I don't want you to do that. I want you to allow those who are around you to glean. They are going to do the work. They are going to come. They have to show up. They have to show initiative. You are not giving them a handout, nor are you just writing a check later for a charity. You are limiting your profit intentionally, and you are pushing back into your community with intentionality, the opportunity for people who are poor to come and glean or gain benefit from, sustenance from your land. It would be not unlike a business owner now saying, let me look at profit sharing and say, I don't want to just take that from the company or the senior level leadership. We want to push that down to our employees. We also want to push that out to our customers and limit our fees where we can impact our wages and what we're paying. We're not trying to pay the, the least and charge the most. 
we're trying to bring this, instead of maximizing profits, we are maximizing gleaning, if you will. People still need to come and show up and do their thing, all right? But laws of gleaning are a part of what God created. Thirdly is this, laws of tithing. Some of you are familiar with this term tithing. It means giving a 10% of your annual income. And this is what God required in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel. 10% of your money was given to the Israelites to upkeep the temple every year. Now, what you may or may not know is every third year, the tithe was then taken and gathered and given out to, technically, I'm going to get my terminology right, given out to the quote-unquote aliens, the fatherless, and the widows. So every third year, the tithe that you would give were given out to, let's put it in our term, instead of aliens, let's, let's call it migrants, the fatherless, the single parents, and, and the widows. We still use that term today. Now, I want you to imagine for a minute, what, what would you call someone, don't say it out loud, what would you call someone who has a political platform of, give us your money and we're going to give it away to the poor people? Don't, don't say that term. But your term, again, our view of how we should treat people in our country, in our community, who are poor, can be more influenced by our political persuasion than by the character of God. And that's all that I'm pressing on here. Okay? That's what I'm pressing on. There's this law of tithing. This is, this is classic wealth redistribution. Okay? This is exactly what it is. This is God saying, this is what I want to do every third year. Here's how we're going to do this. And then finally, there's this year of Jubilee. This is basically the 50th year, really the 49th year. The year of Jubilee is a time when every seven, anyway, every 49 years, there's a complete um, return of land to the original ancestral family. And so if over a period of time you've made some bad decisions, you've gotten into debt, you've sold yourself into slavery to pay off some things, you've just made some bad decisions, every 49th year you have the chance, your family, like if I mess up, my kids don't have to work their way out of my foolishness. They will have a chance on the 49th year to return to the ancestral land. So if our family was given land like every family in the nation of Israel was, they have a chance to kind of restart. And whoever I have sold myself to or come into debt to, We'll have a chance to, to say, okay, we're, we're done, year of Jubilee, everything is released and set back to its original ancestral land. It's a complete reset of debt, even of slavery in that sense, and we're starting over. And so if you made a bunch of bad decisions, it will not linger over your family for generations to come. And in fact, just to drive this home, Jesus, when he came in Luke chapter 4, he said, I have come to bring the year of Jubilee. This is on his mind, to set the prisoner free. Here's the way Craig Blomberg writes about this year of Jubilee. He said, here, if ever, is the ultimate revitalization of private property. On average, each person or family had at least a once-in-a-lifetime chance to start afresh, no matter how irresponsible they had handled their finances or how far into debt that they had fallen. Here's how Tim Keller writes of all this, to wrap it up. He said this, if Israel as an entire society had kept God's laws perfectly with all their hearts, there would have been no permanent long-term poverty. If Israel had done this with all of their hearts, there would be no permanent long-term poverty. I hope in these minutes we've had that you can see a bigger picture of how God might want an entire community to be able to live equitably and fairly with one another. Not just that God is interested in our personal morality and ethics, which he is, not just that personal choices drive poverty, which it does, 
It's just not the only key we need. It just gets us to another room. And in that room, you might find there are some systemic or broader issues that we need to deal with. And maybe not just that I need to pawn off on the government to deal with, but maybe, maybe it's a part of the character of the God that I serve who wants me to consider, what am I seeing? How can I be involved? How can I work this through? So just to review quickly here, all right, just to review, this is where I begin. If we don't understand poverty's causes are more than personal failings and its solutions are more than be a better person, then we'll miss the full heart of God for our local communities. That's what I believe, all right? That's what I believe. I also believe it this way, that poverty is complex and it's fueled by personal choices, crises, and systemic factors. And this, in the Old Testament, God gave a picture of a community that freed the oppressed, redistributed wealth through gleaning and tithing, and gave priority to caring for the poor. Now, what do you do with this? Okay, what do you do with this? Let's say you're still awake. What do you do with all this? Okay, now I, I will say this quickly. If you're used to hearing me talk, this series is a little bit more teaching heavy, okay? Because I think many of us believe some of these things already. I am trying to sink the nails in a little bit further on the mission of this church. Grace Point has said for years now that we want to be a transforming presence in the town square. How? Our strategy. By relentlessly pursuing the social, spiritual, and cultural good. Socially, how people relate to people. Spiritual, how people connect to God. Culturally, how people connect or relate to the systems around them that create the culture in the world they're in. Why do we talk like that? Because of this. Because God, because God said this is the kind of community I want to create. It wasn't just get everyone together, make sure they're all personally moral and ethical, that they marry the right people and keep everything just right. Like, just make sure that's fine. He also, like the bulk of Scripture's addressing of poverty was dealing with systemic issues. So why do we deal with it? Not because we want to be government, but because God did. That's why. All right, that's why. So I want to take you. A couple of weeks ago, we had a Together Initiative Network quarterly reporting meeting. That's a mouthful. Uh, in this room, you may not be able to see it too well, but there are about 55 people in the room representing a variety of sectors in our community. I want you to know the church, Grace Point, is centric to this. You may or may not realize this all the time, but what you are doing and supporting and participating in is central to what's happening here. There's some faces in the room that you may know here, some people here who, you know, we have the school district represented, the factory, uh, ed um, township leaders, hospital leaders, uh, social service leaders, uh, workforce development people, business leaders. Um, and one of the people who was at this table, um, this is where people come together and talk in our community. It's our virtual town square. One of these people who came to this meeting um, last time is this guy right here, not me. The person I'm pointing to unknowingly when the picture was taken, some of you may know him, is uh, Justice Scheller, uh, Judge Scheller, um, out from the Intercourse Magisterial District Justice. A couple weeks prior to this meeting, I had a chance to go to Judge Scheller's office, and I said to him, uh, okay, can you tell me, can you tell me what it is, I often ask this question, what keeps you up at night or what wakes you up in the morning? In other words, <laughs> what are you worried or anxious about or what gets you up and drives you for your passion in the morning? And he said, you know what, there's two things. One is our housing problem in our community, but the second thing, he said, I ran on a platform five years ago starting a youth aid panel, and we've never been able to get it off the ground. I would love to be able to do that. A youth aid panel is simply a, a volunteer group of adults in the room who a community recognizes and the district attorney of Lancaster will recognize as having authority. And so if a young, usually a minor, 
has a, a minor uh, problem, a, a drug problem, or a truancy issue, they can, instead of just going to Judge Scheller, they can go to this youth aid panel, have, a, have their case adjudicated or decided, and have a resolution to it that won't get on their record in any way. Judge Scheller says, I'd love to see that, but I've not been able to get it off the ground. I'm like, well, bring it. Like, let's do it. I said, I can almost guarantee you this will get off the ground. He came to this meeting, and this is why he was here. He shared about this youth aid panel. From that, he received last week 13 different letters of recommendation, including one from Representative Cutler, that in this community, we need to see a youth aid panel. You know what Judge Scheller had to say to me afterwards? Here's a, here's a text from him. He said, this is awesome. TIN, Together Initiative Network, is doing more than they know. This is going to help many young folks. It is not often that I'm speechless, but this is one of those times. I'm not only encouraged, I'm excited to be a part of it. Why in the world do we spend time in these meetings? Because my, why in the world do we do this? Because there are kids. The, the injustice is not distributed evenly. The kids who come to see Judge Scheller are disproportionately poor. And so why do we do this? Why do we create systemic solutions to things? Not because we're trying to take over government, but because we look around and we say, what do I see and how can I help? And we try to get involved in a way that doesn't displace government. We're not competing with that. But it says, what are the systemic issues that we see? And how can we help? What do we see? I'm excited about this. I hope you are too. You may not realize that this is a win from GPC side, but I'm telling you, this is a win, in my opinion, from the heart of God to say there is injustice, if you will. This is disproportionately impacting the poor children in our community. And here we have a solution. This thing is moving forward and getting off the ground. In a few months, I expect this to be applied at Peckway Valley, and I'm excited for that. This is the work that our community is doing together. In fact, just this morning, just this morning, in a newspaper dated September 21, 2022. Process that one for a minute. September 21. Woo! Just if you want to know what's going on in the future, read the penny saver. <laughs> All right? They are there before we are. And here's what happens. It says, making mentoring work. You know what this is a story of? The Together Initiative Network. It's a story of mentoring business leaders coming together with education leaders, coming together with Lancaster Chamber. You know how that happened? This work that you're doing, this work you're supporting, this way that you're participating in this, this is bringing young people who may have never have any idea that GPC was involved in this kind of stuff. These are systemic solutions that we're bringing so that people of all ages can experience a justice in a community. Because our faith doesn't just drive us to be personally moral, although it does. It isn't just responding to crisis, although we should. It also drives us to ask and consider if God, when he could create any kind of community that he could in the Old Testament, he created a community of justice with significant laws around economics, around justice, around loans, around employment. He cared enough to write that down, and that's the bulk of how he deals with poverty. Then maybe as a follower of that God, I need to consider what does that mean for my faith? It's not just enough to think, personal choices unlock the key to poverty. It's not enough. And so let me give you this personal question. Last thing and then I'm done, I promise. Simple question. I just want to encourage you to ask, what do I see around me? What do you see around you? What do you see? What if you were to ask that 
This is not a big question. What do you see around you? What if you could really see? What if you could listen with new ears? What if you could ask a question to your employees or to your coworkers or the people in school around you? What if you could see what it's like, imagine what it's like to walk in their shoes, to, to go home to where they live, to imagine the diet that they live on, to wonder what it's like not to have a dad or a mom or either in the home, to imagine why are they involved in drugs in the first place? What is it like actually to be raised by a single parent? What do I do if I'm on a fixed income and inflation has hit me quite like this? What do you see around you? What do you see around you? And what are some ways that you can personally come alongside and say, okay, here's the people that I'm seeing, maybe from a different light. Maybe it's more than just personal choices. Maybe there's some ways that I can be involved in the Together Initiative. There's some ways that I can be involved in supporting. And if you don't know what those are, that's where we get to talk. Say, I have no idea how to help, but I see something. And that's how that's how, by the way, things got done. Years ago, and with this story, I promise I'll finish. Years ago, this church made a decision to hire Katie Byler as a literacy liaison, birth to five literacy liaison. It was a bold decision. Uh, it started a chain effect of literacy liaisons in and through this community. Now, this is the first year that the kindergartens that Katie first connected with five years ago are hitting kindergarten now. You should know, all but five entering kindergartners were touched by the programs that Katie and the literacy liaisons helped to create. All but five, that's huge. For future literacy, that's huge. For future poverty reduction, that's a huge systemic win. These are things, we don't always see the big things and how they're moving, but I'm telling you, as we follow the heart of God for the culture and the community in which we live, this is the kind of stuff, combined with our personal choice to follow Christ, our response to crises, and also the systemic issues we deal with, all are part of how we grow in our faith and how we create and support communities of justice and fairness. All right. With that being said, guys, let me encourage you to ask the question, what do I see? And maybe encourage yourself to see things just a little bit differently. All right, will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be here this morning to maybe look at a version or expression of our faith that uh, can seem foreign uh, and out of place um, at first glance. I pray that you would stir in us a want, a desire, a, a vision to see the people around us and to see injustice where it lies, to consider how we can help, not just from a personal and moral level, not to stand here removed and point out people's failings and, well, that's why they're in poverty, but to understand that there's also significant contributing systemic factors, that as a God of justice, and freedom, a God who is a God who creates laws of release, gleaning, and tithing, the year of Jubilee, that you have created these ways and means for us to grow our businesses in a healthy way, for us to care for our friends, our peers in a healthy way. And so I pray that you would give us the courage to ask the question, what do I see? And maybe expand our own vision of what justice can look like and what doing good looks like in our community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.